Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The word of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they might be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, whenever we come to passages like the one we just heard, uh, predictions and warnings about the end of the world as we know it, I'm always a little hesitant to say, uh, thanks be to God after the word of the Lord. A nation will rise up against nation. The kingdoms will descend into war. The earth is going to come apart at the seams. And that's just the beginning of the birth pangs, the word of the Lord. (laughs) The word of the Lord, I guess. You know, what are we supposed to do with passages like this? Uh, and, and, you know, it only gets worse after this, if you read further in Mark's gospel. And my inclination is to kind of turn away, to ignore them, to explain them into submission, if I can. I'm going to try not to do that today, because I think that the thing we really ought to do is to lean in. Now, this is what the scholars call an apocalyptic text. And when they use that descriptor, they're talking about a particular kind of writing and preaching with predictable kind of patterns and and content. Uh, Apocalyptic texts are prone to these bursts of exaggeration, um, a poetic kind of exaggeration to make a point. You know, in the verses that follow, Jesus is going to say that when things go down, the stars are going to fall from the heavens, which is obviously not like a literal forecast. (laughs) Uh, An apocalyptic word toes the line between a social kind of theological uh, commentary about the present and elements of prediction about how things will be. Apocalypse comes from the the Greek word apokalupten, 
which means to reveal or to uncover, right? Apocalyptic passages of scripture uh, and the apocalyptic preachings of Jesus and other prophets in the Bible reveal something about how things are, about how God is, and about how things will be when God gets the world God wants. And the underlining assumption of these passages is that God will get the world that God wants. Heaven's kingdom is on the move which is always a little bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? Or at least it seems to be. You know, when we actually listen to the things that Jesus expects of his followers as they begin to embody the kingdom of heaven on earth, when we pay attention to the things that those same disciples do in the wake of Jesus' ministry, it's, it's likely to make most of us feel a little squirmy. You know, in the book of Acts, which is the church's response to Jesus' earthly ministry and the enlivening ministry of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are accused of turning the world upside down. The early church messes with people's pocketbooks as some disquieting things, uh, expectations about how we'll deal with our stuff and our property. They, they actively move towards the kinds of people we actively move away from, just like Jesus did, just like he, like he still does. Now, Jesus is regularly inverting our expectations as much now as he was in the first century. If we're going to be beacons of the kingdom of heaven on earth, if we're going to take part of being the answer to our prayer that God's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven, we can't cling too tightly to the way that things are. In fact, Jesus regularly calls his disciples to let go and to cling to something else. And I think that's what these apocalyptic passages are for. They, first of all, help us to see the truth about the world as it is and as it will be. And they loosen our grip on the current order of things so that we can come open-handed to receive something else, something more beautiful. Now, apocalyptic passages make us face reality in a way that will probably make us uncomfortable and in a way that will, in the end, save us. And still, I'd be right there with the disciples, you know? And I'm sure I would be, as they gazed up at the temple, marveling at the size and splendor of the buildings. The temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, as it was called, because of Herod the Great's uh, renovation and expansion project, uh, was a sight to behold, especially for the bunch of country bumpkins that were the disciples of Jesus. The archaeologists tell us that the stones that they're all excited about really were impossibly massive. It was almost certainly the largest building any of them had ever and would ever see. It was spectacular. And it told a story like all architecture does. Right? The temple told a captivating story. It represented what uh, leaders like Herod the Great expected of their God and of their nation. Politics and religion and economics were not things that we thought about differently in the first century. They, they were completely entwined. Herod's temple was a theological statement. It was a political statement. It was a, a vision for the hopes and dreams of this peculiar little nation on the edge of the Roman Empire. Now, Jerusalem may have been a long way from the centers of power, but her temple stood against the idea that, uh, that Rome's gods were the only ones in charge here. So it's easy to understand why the disciples are impressed, why they want Jesus to look and see. And that's an important moment. I think Mark uses that, tells the story very, very particularly. Because in the story before, uh, Jesus has told his disciples to look and see. Right before this story, there's a story of a poor woman 
who gives a minuscule offering in the temple, which for her is this wild act of uh, generosity and commitment. Jesus says to his disciples, as her pathetic little copper coins rattle around in the treasury box, he says, look at this woman, pay attention. In the math of the kingdom, her gift given out of her poverty is of more consequence than those who give out of their abundance. Well, that's a sermon for another day. Um, we'll still invite you to give out of your abundance uh, later on. But, but clearly Jesus is, is telling, uh, is trying to help his disciples understand that in his way, when God is at work, the metrics get all messed up. Right? He's been on them about this from the get-go. Right? The first will be last. The servants are the greatest. The Son of Man came not to get, but to give. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of the kingdom, you'll get back more life than you could possibly imagine. Look at this impoverished widow, he says. Pay attention to what she does, and you'll catch a glimpse of the ways and means of God. And then the disciples say, yeah, Jesus, that's really cool. But did you see the size of these stones? <laughs> Have you seen how big these buildings are? That must tell us something about God too, right? And Jesus says those stones are going to topple like a house of cards, which is more or less what happens in 70 CE. Rome sacks Jerusalem for getting a little too big for its britches, and the temple is destroyed. Now, New Testament scholars get kind of giddy about these sorts of predictions, like the one that Jesus makes, and they argue over whether or not uh, this means that Mark wrote the gospel after the fact uh, and put the prediction in Jesus' mouth, or if uh, this means that it was written earlier and it confirms Jesus' uh, divine ability to see what's coming. And, you know, those might be interesting questions and worth, worth arguing about, but frankly, and I think this is more to the point of what Mark, of Mark's telling, as far as predictions go, this one was pretty easy. I mean, anyone attuned to the ways and means of God could have seen it coming. Because here's something important to know. At fairly regular intervals, Roman emperors tried to get statues of themselves erected uh, in the temple. And of course, this was, this was horrific to the Jews who faithfully worshipped there, who came to the temple to worship God and had no God but Yahweh. And the result was generally uproar, followed by violence perpetuated by the powers that be. But it also tells us that the keepers of the way things are, the ways of power and violence that, that might makes right and the meek will be ground into the earth, recognize that the temple in its way, like every institution, if we're not careful, is useful for keeping the status quo. That's why the church was the way before it was the church. You know, the inevitable struggle, uh, the inevitable end, rather, to the struggle between the way things are and the way that they will be is that the way things are will crumble. Not one stone will be left upon another. And, you know, I can't help but wonder what the tone of the conversation was after that, the one that follows on the Mount of Olives. When Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus privately, they're not ready to have this conversation in public yet. You know, how, how do they ask this question? What will it be? When will this be? And what will it be like? When will it be? And what will it be like? And do they ask in, in fear? Or do they ask in anticipation? Are they starting to realize that the way things are is not all it's cracked up to be? Or are they still holding on to the story that Herod's temple tells? 
Are they looking forward to the world being turned right side up or are they not altogether sure they're ready for that kind of change? You know, for, for me, it kind of depends on the day, frankly, sometimes the hour of the day. Now, when I, when I hear that world leaders are prepared to do something about climate change just a little bit after it'll be possible to do anything about climate change, when it seems clear that the possibility of rich people getting rich and the rest of us doing more or less what we've been doing without changing anything, is more important than the possibility of my grandkids and great-grandkids having a world worth living in. I say hasten the day. Bring down the house of cards. When I hear about atrocities perpetrated by the powerful on the powerless, all for the sake of maintaining that power. When I hear of wars and rumors of wars for so-called national interest, I say hasten the day. When I hear lip service paid to the importance of reconciliation with indigenous peoples, but we can't get them clean water because corporations need tax breaks after all, I say, hasten the day. When's it gonna happen, Jesus? When will the kingdom of steadfast love and justice and righteousness come in all its fullness? How long, O oh Lord? On the other hand, when I sit in my comfortable apartment and one of the most expensive cities in the world, and I'm less enthusiastic about the whole thing coming crashing down. When I realize that even though I'm a ways away from being a space tourist, I'm still comfortably within the, the ranks of the rich in the world, then I'm easily distracted by the way things are. Let's just watch Netflix instead, shall we? When as a straight, white, middle-class, cisgendered man, I can be pretty confident that I can go anywhere and do just about anything I like, I probably have to admit that there are plenty of moments where I'm not quite ready for the world to be inverted. When's it gonna happen, Jesus? When will the kingdom of steadfast love and justice and righteousness come in all its fullness? A heads up would be really helpful for me. I've got some things to get in order. I wonder how Peter and James and John and Andrew asked the question. I wonder how we would ask it today. How, how would you ask this question? And, and I think in the end, I'm grateful for Jesus' answer, which is more or less, and I am paraphrasing radically here. He says, look at me. Don't look at the big stones and the opulence. Don't look at other would-be saviors. Don't be distracted by the way that see, things seem to be or the headlines that wither your spirits, but pay attention to me and to what I've said because I've already told you everything. <laughs> That's what he says in a few verses to his disciples. Don't worry, look at me, I've told you everything. And I don't believe that what Jesus wants or means is for us to forget the world, forget about the headlines because ignorance really is bliss. I don't believe that Jesus invites us to absent, absent ourselves from the world, to create safe little enclaves for ourselves. I think that what he's saying is that what's coming is on the move already, in spite of any headlines to the contrary. Out of the destruction inevitably comes, uh, that inevitably comes uh, when the principalities and powers of the world try to establish their own kingdom over and against the kingdom of God, out of the ashes of best laid plans and idolatrous expectations, God will birth something new. And we know that when we pay more and more attention to Jesus. And I, and I don't mean this tritely. I don't simply mean let go and let God. 
I mean that our hope rests on the promise that what we see in him is what God is up to in the world, and that what God is up to in the world, God is up to in us and even through us. And Jesus is telling his disciples not to worry about what Rome is going to do, pay attention to what God will do, and then get in on that. And in Jesus, we see that God can bring life out of a grave. God can transform the world's neurotic violence into hope and wonder. God can turn ashes into beauty. God will make us into living stones, as, uh, as Janice prayed. God will make us into living stones to build an altogether different kind of temple. St. Peter says that. He says, come to him. Come to Jesus as living stones, rejected by the world, but precious to God, and let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood established to proclaim the mighty acts of God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Even when things are falling down, God is rebuilding. I think that's important. It's important to hear here that Jesus is not saying that God's going to bring destruction. The kingdoms of the world seem to be perfectly capable of that. But the implication is that God will bring new births. Out of the destruction, God will call a new people. Out of the grave, God will bring new life. It's also worth noting that the same Jesus who speaks with wide eyes wide open about the end of the, all things and is the same one who says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And I tend to think that what what tends to crush us is the pressure uh, from the weight of the big stones of the way things are, right? Whether it's pressure to perform or acquire or succeed, whether it's dealing with the fears that surround us and keep us frantically seeking our own safety and security, whether it's concern that there won't be enough or that we're not enough or that our faith isn't enough. It's the weight of these idols that we carry around, even the very attractive ones, the huge stones that will crumble anyways, no matter how hard we try to preserve them. That's what Jesus invites us to trade. That's what he turns our gaze from. And he calls us to turn our gaze to himself. To recognize in him the God who is relentlessly for us and for this world. The God who gets down in the dust with us. The God whose heart burns with justice. The one who is delighted by acts of generosity and mercy. The one whose MO is freedom for captives and good news for the poor and fresh sight and a new possibility. One that we catch a glimpse of in Jesus, in his life, even in his death, in his resurrection through which God conquers the power of sin and death. And in his ascension to heaven's throne through which we know the heart of the one who will get the world that he wants. Now, it's in the company of this God and the promises of this God that we are becoming signs of the new world that God is birthing in the shell of the old. It's in the company and promises of this God that we can be in Wendell Berry's great line, joyful though we've surveyed all the facts. It's in the company and promises of this God that when it feels like the world is coming apart at the seams, that we can do the serious work of repentance of letting our minds not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed for the sake of what God is doing, choosing the way of Jesus that will never crumble. It's in the company and promises of this God 
that we can become the people who are becoming the answer to our prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in our lives as it is in heaven. As we enter into our time of silence, I invite you to reflect on that prayer, to let it convict and comfort. And in all things, may God give us grace and gifts. Amen.